I work at night, so I haven't paid a lot of attention to what's going on in the U.S. midterm elections. I gather if you turn on any of the Amnets, it's on. It's blanket coverage. But one of the most fascinating races, for many reasons, first of all, it matters. Uh, the Senate is very much up for grabs in these midterms. Um, and whoever wins Pennsylvania has a good chance of controlling the Senate. So it is a big, big election. Uh, in the grand scheme of things, as far as American politics is concerned. And that, of course, means that candidates have been facing off in debates, and few debates were more anticipated than the lone debate between these two candidates. Last night's showdown in Pennsylvania between Democrat John Fetterman and Republican Mehmet Oz. Yes, that, Dr. Oz. You may recognize the name. Uh, but there was a lot to debate there. There were many issues to talk about. Fetterman's health was also center stage following a stroke that he had five months ago in no small part because the Oz's campaign has been continuously casting doubt on his ability to do the job because of it. It was a matter the 53-year-old Harvard grad Fetterman chose to address head-on last night. And let's also talk about the elephant in the room. I had a stroke. He's never let me forget that. And I might miss some words during this debate, mush two words together, but it knocked me down, but I'm going to keep coming back up. And this campaign is all about, to me, is about fighting for everyone in Pennsylvania that ever got knocked down that needs to get back up and fighting for all forgotten communities all across Pennsylvania that also got knocked down that needs to keep get back up. John Fetterman there. Well, following the debate, there were a lot of headlines about his struggles. It continued today to raise questions about how transparent campaigns should be about a candidate's health. If Republicans using it to cast doubt on his capacity to hold a Senate seat really crosses a line, and if the media scrutiny of Fetterman's rehabilitation is in of itself an issue. So since none of us or few of us live in Pennsylvania, at least I don't think we do, maybe if you're out there and you're in Pennsylvania, let me know, but if few of us live there and we won't be voting in that election one way or another, perhaps instead this is a chance to learn about the impacts of stroke and the stigma that can still come with it, because I think in many ways that's that's what we're watching unfold in Pennsylvania. And there's a lot of questions. Even I woke woke up this morning with a lot of questions about exactly what was going on. Um, joining me now to help us do that is Dr. Sean Duclo. He's an associate professor in the Department of Clinical Neuroscience at the University of Calgary and the medical director of stroke rehabilitation for the Calgary Stroke Program. Thanks so much for your time tonight, Doctor. Uh, thank you. For, thank you for having me. What did you make? Did you manage to see any, any of the debate or any of the highlights today? It's been it's been everywhere. Well, I, so I did manage to see it. I heard about it, uh, and it's a it's an interesting thing. I mean, I so I work in a, a busy clinic. We see lots of patients with stroke, and lots of people have a stroke and walk away. And you you know, a month or two after the stroke, or sometimes even a few days after the stroke, you wouldn't know they had one. And so. I deal with patients, though, who have significant deficits after stroke. They have trouble moving one side of their body. They have trouble with their vision. Uh, and that can take a lot longer to uh, to come back. And, you know, we work to try to get people back to their maximum capacity after they have a stroke. So uh, it's it's interesting how the how the media has uh, has um, picked up on on this this uh, debate and the issue. And I, and I appreciate why, I guess, but uh, yeah, someone can be have a stroke and they may have some difficulty with aphasia, which is trouble communicating, but they may be completely cognitively intact behind that. So, 
Yeah, I, I, th I think part of the issue here, and Stat Magazine, that, have, that are a very, very good medically focused magazine, essentially put out an article this morning saying, let's make this a learning moment. Uh, you know, that, that was their take on it and, and wrote a long article about it that I thought was really well done. Um, what are some of the misconceptions here? I think part of the issue is that campaigns in the U.S. are so focused on image and, ability, and debate, for instance, that if one of the two candidates does appear to have trouble communicating, immediately their cognitive abilities are called into question, right? And I think that's what the other campaigns been doing. It's been a nasty campaign, to be fair. Um, but there is a big difference between struggling with your language skills in the months during rehabilitation and your cognitive abilities, I gather. Yes, yeah. And so... In the centers that uh, control our ability to to output speech, uh, you know, they can you can have a stroke which overlaps with some of the areas of the brain that control your cognitive function. But you know, certainly we see patients who come through who have fairly isolated abilities and their ability to get words across, or they may have some word finding ability, like you mentioned in the clip that you just played. Um, but everything behind that curtain is completely intact. And so that can be, it, it can lead to very false perceptions on behalf of others of what's actually going on. And, and in patients that I deal with, you can have the opposite happens where they can present very well initially, so they can talk and they can communicate fairly well, but they have significant cognitive deficits behind that. So you wouldn't have them driving a car or you wouldn't have them doing you know, complex activities, but on the surface, the, the person may look just fine. Is there, I mean, for the people that you see and help, um, is there still a frustration over the stigma that may still exist when it comes to someone who isn't able, after a certain point, who's still struggling to find find their words, as, as John Fetterman was mentioning in that clip? Oh, significantly. I see this every day in clinic. I have many of my patients come in and they complain about it. And quite honestly, in someone who's recovering from aphasia, you know, one of the one of the last things to recover is that ability to find words. And so I have patients who are, will get very quick at being able to get another word to replace the word that they're trying to find. And they're very eloquent. And on the surface, you have no idea that they had a stroke, but in private, when they're talking with me, or maybe they're talking with their spouse, they'll confess that they struggled to find the words that they wanted to find in the conversation that they just had with you. Yeah, it must be. I mean, I can imagine how frustrating it is individually. Do you think as society that it's one of those one of those barriers that we still have? And that's why this whole John Fetterman issues has created so much attention, because we still struggle to understand, you know, understand exactly what recovering from a stroke might look like. Yeah, I, I don't think a lot of people appreciate what recovering from a stroke looks like until it happens to them or it happens to someone they love or they care about. Uh, and and one of the one of the misconceptions I think um, is that you know we can give a, a medication and, and things get all better and that's that's because of the success of some of my colleagues who deal with acute stroke in the first 24 hours that have therapies that you know impact maybe about 10 or 15 percent of individuals with stroke where they can remove a clot and the effects of the stroke in in most cases go away and the patient walks out a day from the hospital a day or two later and they're essentially untouched by that stroke. But the rest of the people who come through and have ongoing impairments because of their stroke need to go through often fairly extensive rehabilitation. So uh, I don't know Fetterman's story, what rehabilitation that he's, that he's come through. 
but the patients I would see with aphasia might spend, you know, four or five hours a week at working with a speech language pathologist. They might do that for six or eight weeks while they're in an inpatient rehabilitation facility. They might, in addition to spending that time one-on-one with the therapist, they'll have homework that's given to them that they do with a partner, a family member. And then they go out into outpatient environment where two or three days a week they're going into a outpatient um, center and they're again working with a speech therapist, working with a therapy assistant to try to rehabilitate their ability to use language and communicate. So it's a really intensive process because there's no magic pill to fix what's wrong when you get into post-stroke aphasia. Yeah, it's, it sounds like it sounds like rehabbing a broken bone or something that you have to sort of work at it to bring back its strength. How effective is yeah. it in, in, forever? I mean, I realized that I, I was reading today, and you can correct me if this is wrong, but that language is one of those things that actually continues to recover for a longer period of time than some other functions, that language can be recovered for, you know, over time by someone who's recovering from a stroke. Yeah. So, you know, when I'm talking to patients, you know, often you have to emphasize, we're not doing the hundred meter dash here. This is a, this is an ultra marathon in terms of how long this is going to take to recover and how long you're going to have to keep working at things. And patients can make gains for quite a long time. The, the old adage that we talked to a patient is really based on studies in the 1990s that looked at motor recovery of the, of the arm and the leg. And we saw sort of most of recovery would happen over the first three or four months. But with language, yeah, we do see that it can recover for a much longer period of time, one, two years, even beyond that. I'll have patients come in and they'll say, yeah, I'm still, you know, things still are getting a bit better. I'm able to carry on a conversation a bit. So that sometimes patients struggle with that a little bit, that that this is going to be a real hard fight to get back to where I need to be. And you asked about how successful it is. Um, it, It can be pretty successful. It depends a bit on how much effort in some cases the patient's willing to put in. And the other factor probably is the size of their stroke. How much of the brain has been damaged as a result of the stroke is a factor that consistently comes up when we look at cases and, uh, and how, well they, how well they resolve over time. Now he's been wanting to put garlic chives in everything. <laughs> well, not everything. Dad, the sight of your face is drooping. Mom, Probably nothing. Dad, are you okay? You're slurring. Why are you slurring? Raise your arms up in the air for me. Dad, are you okay? Gracie, call 911. Perhaps one of the most, I thought, effective public um, information campaigns that we'd seen on Canadian TV in quite some time. I'm with Dr. Sean Duclo this half hour. Uh, He is the medical director of stroke stroke rehabilitation for the Calgary Stroke Program, also with the uh, University of Calgary uh, Clinical in the Department of Clinical Neuroscience. Um, Raising awareness has been a real issue, I guess, when it comes to stroke, uh, Dr. Duclo. Mainly, we have an aging population, so the risk is increasing. Um, and we need people to be aware of, of what the signs are. Are we doing a better job? Well, I, I think we're, we're doing an okay job. Certainly, from what I see, which is, which is Calgary-based, in terms of people recognizing that they or their loved one has had a stroke and getting to the hospital in a timely manner, and that's that's really critical across the country because we actually, you know, for the last 20 years, a little over 20 years, we've had therapies that can improve outcomes. And so 
we have uh, something called thrombolysis, so we can break up clots when they get to the brain if patients get in within the first few hours after they've had a stroke. And in more recent years, we actually have a catheter-based therapy uh, called endovascular therapy where we can, uh, my neuroradiology and neurosurgery colleagues can snake a catheter up into the brain to pull out the clot. Um, it, it's a select group of cases, so you know, 10 to 15% of cases that uh, get those therapies and, and uh, it's because they get into hospital in time. Um, I still do see patients who uh, come to come to the hospital 10 days, 15 days after they've had a stroke. And at that point, they're just not eligible for those therapies because the damage is already done. So I think we do, we're doing better than we did 20 years ago. Could we continue to do better? Sure. I think there's room for, room for improvement on recognizing, you know, if somebody has a, a droop in their face that's happened suddenly, uh, if they're having trouble talking, if they're having trouble moving one side of their body, it's time to call 911 and get to the hospital. Yeah, that's that great acronym, FAST, right? It, it, yeah. uh, it's it's yeah. once you once you read it as I did today many times, it's hard to forget it. Actually, it's 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 a good one. Um, so people remember, I guess it's it's face is it drooping, arms can you raise both, speech is it slurred or jumbled, and time to call nine one one. That's yeah. the uh, yeah. that's the acronym. Um, and, and this is a problem. I mean, not to mention just you know the earlier you catch one of a, a stroke, the, the less demand. You, on the medical system, I imagine that's part of the issue now too. Is that we have a medical system under strain, and that uh, and yeah. that you know the more we can prevent people from long-term chronic problems, the better. Yes, yeah, and, and I mean, I, our, our hospital lengths to stay cost thousands and thousands of dollars, which is Canadians we really don't see the cost of that. Uh, but um, if, if we can get somebody in and out of hospital in a matter of twenty-four or forty-eight hours versus a typical patient who who comes through, uh, and, and, and the length of stay is very little bit across the country, but but they might spend if, if they have a moderate stroke, so you know significant impairments in their ability to move or talk and or talk, um, they might spend eight to fifteen days in the acute care hospital and another forty to forty five days in an inpatient rehab facility, and then they might spend another six to twelve weeks in an outpatient rehab program. And the cost of that, again, varies across the country, but it's, it's significant. You're into the six-figure range per patient uh, per stroke. So, Yeah, I mean, it, it, it certainly, um, it certainly and, and I never realized, I think, just how important time was when it comes to stroke, that, that you can actually do a lot of good if you, can, if you catch it early. I mean, you were just mentioning that and just how much of a difference it actually makes. Yeah, it, it can make the difference between walking out of the hospital with no deficits, and you know, you know, even at the end of you know, six months of treatment, uh, still having a significant uh, inability to be able to move uh, or to communicate. Uh, to go back to where we began with all this, I think sometimes when people have a stroke and it's obvious that they have they've had some impacts from it, that people around them or even people who who meet them don't really know what to say or how to act. When you talk to people in those situations, how should we approach someone who's had a stroke? How should we try to make uh, you know? How should we try to improve their their chances of success and not hinder their chances of, su- of success in the way that we treat them? <laughs> Yeah. So, so I guess it, it, it probably depends on a, a little bit on where you meet someone in their recovery path. But, it, but first of all, they're another person. 
So treat them like another person <laughs> and certainly don't, don't look down on them, which I, I see sometimes happen. Um, it, oftentimes when people are going through therapy and they're in that first three, four, five, six months that they're in the hospital or they're working outpatient rehab, uh, a lot of people could benefit from encouragement because they're doing a lot of hard work. Uh, and sometimes from day to day, they don't actually see how much they gain. Uh, for patients who I might see once a month or once, you know, once every eight weeks in that process, you can see the big changes. Uh, and often, you know, I'll get a smile when I'll say, you know, Mr. or Mrs. Smith, you've made big improvements. I can see those improvements. You know, you're communicating much better. You're moving much better. You're walking faster. So I think you know, providing providing a co- appropriate encouragement. And for some people, it's about actually providing support. A lot of my patients uh, who have aphasia uh, are are looking for people to communicate with. And so right. having having someone there to talk to actually is an important part of their therapy and their recovery. So you can you can volunteer to do something along those lines as well. Dr. Sean Duclo, thank you so much for uh, for. Um, shedding some light on this on a day when people have been talking about it, uh, both in an informed and ill-informed way. So thanks for bringing, bringing some information here to us. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Ben.